should, the things we should be talking about the East are not the Filioque. We should be talking about uh, you know, Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Justification. Justification. Yeah, you guys need to have yeah. the gospel first, and then we can talk about <laughs> the Filioque. <laughs> That's the tagline right there. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Landon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I am here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Excellent. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. Can I get your thoughts on the sidelining of the M&M's spokes candies? Are, are you up on this? <laughs> yes, I am. It's the silliest thing in the entire I world. It. I love it so much. Matt, wait, wait, do, you know, wait, do you know this? Okay. I have so no they idea. Have the, you know, like the, the, the sort of um, They've tried to rebrand candies. the M&M's. Animated. I mean, in the very beginning, it was always weird that they had these little people that were ostensibly going to be eaten. Like, I mean, just <laughs> as a, you know, it's like, it was, I always thought that was weird there. But um, you tell Nick, you you seem to have the real corner. Over of the last couple of years, they've tried to rebrand the M and M's spokes candies, which I was talking to my wife, and I think we've only really seen them in that advertisement before the movies. But they're they've. No, I think some... they're all the. I think they're all the people in Times Square walk around and like yeah, right, <laughs> like they, drunk and flashing people. They've changed some footwear here and there. They've gotten new progressive attitudes. And the pushback has apparently become so strong that Mars has scrapped the whole thing and oh. hi- hired Maya Rudolph to be the new spokesperson in place of the candies, pushing the animated characters out of the limelight. And we are finally now <laughs> re- well and truly through the looking glass here. Who's Maya Rudolph? <laughs> uh, Saturday Night Live alum. Okay, she was, well, she was, no, what was her big character? She always did Oprah. That was right. That was what she did. Saturday Night Live. Okay. Remember? And you get a car, and you get a car, and you get a car. <laughs> She's pretty funny, it but it's just funny that they had so. to they had to make an announcement. You know, let's let's talk America. <laughs> we need to talk about <laughs> the spokes candies. Well, and some of them were pretty funny. Like they were, you know, they had like some, you know, it was like slight like social anxiety disorders. Yeah, apparently, they had, had personalities. Like... Who knew? Yeah, I don't know. I think yeah, it's 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 unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it's it's not really unbelievable at this point. It's just it's it's. I mean, it's just laughable, uh, but I don't know. Was, I was I was glad to see it at the very least. It's like, you know, I mean, it's... Hey, it's humans M&Ms. got a job. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although Chad AI put everyone out, everyone out, um, except in person. It's going to be... Uh, Bring back the blue wild. books. The blue books That's are right. coming back. Everyone's going to have to learn how to write again. It's like yeah. that, those muscles have been uh, <laughs> atrophied and everyone's everyone's ability. Right. Of course, I never learned how to print. And so I'm finding out as an adult that that was a real, a real setback. So I print the way that someone who um, writes where everyone else would write with their left hand. I can write cursive, I think, beautifully. But, uh, you know, print legibly. Uh-huh. I'm always like, uh, can you help uh-huh. me here? <laughs> yeah. I have to have Aya fill out our baptismal certificates because – my handwriting is completely illegible. Well, and then they always send back the insurance card. They're like, because they're, they're, they input, the data input is like always the wrong child, wrong birthday, wrong name. <laughs> so like, here's a bill for $62,000 for a Carrington joke. I'm like, no, no, that was a K. That was a K, not a J. <laughs> uh, 
Well, it's been our practice, at least on the average episode of Stand Firm, to address a topic that has some current <laughs> cultural impact, abortion, LGBTQ plus ideology, wokeness in the church, and so on, stuff that's going on today. Uh, this episode, though, we're going to go back in time, way back, like back to the 5th century AD. JD is teaching a class on the 39 Articles for the Davenant Institute, and an issue came up in that class that led to some interesting discussion that we thought we'd continue on here, that of the filioque clause in the Nicene Creed. So, JD, why don't you do a brief sort of review, and then we'll get into our discussion. What is the filioque, and what's the controversy about? Well, filioque um, in Latin is it literally just means and the sun. And so that's what it means, the addition to the Nicene Creed, where it says um, uh, who the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, the filioque. And to be honest, this is what I was interested. I know uh, I'm grateful that Matt has done more thinking about this. I have to confess, I was surprised, um, given all of the other aspects of the the 39 articles that we were discussing during a relatively short class, that this was... Um, such a such a hot topic and i um again confess my not ignorance of the division i mean obviously if you take western civilization or if you if you know your church history at all you understand that the great schism in part was precipitated by um, disagreement over the filioque within the creed and and i have been somewhat conversant with the um the arguments which matt will uh, give us uh, more in a second um but i i did i have to say from an acna perspective and this just you know you don't can't know everything uh, can attempt to but i didn't realize how um big a deal it was in the acna um or how how much um energy and time had been spent and it was just a, sort of enlightening to me so i was I was ostensibly teaching this class, although I wasn't really listening to much of the discussion <laughs> as much as anything, and went to the prayer book. And I'd always seen the bracket at the Nicene Creed when doing communion. And I finally went to read on page 768 from the Documentary Foundations. And, and was surprised to see that, that as far as I can tell, and Matt, you can correct me, that seems to be leaning towards uh, dropping the filioque with respect uh, for in the ACNA, at least the way that I'm reading this page. Now, I've never been in an ACNA church that, that has it would be quite jarring to me, um, it, I think, although, you know, surgical changes are always quite jarring. But essentially, you know, the argument that was being made was that if there's a procession, um, if, there's a, if there's the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there is distinctions within it, which we also could talk about, but nevertheless unity, then if there's a unifying essence or or or, or aspect in this case procession from the father and the son but not the holy spirit well then that does disservice to the the unity of the three at least that was the argument being made and so um so if there's two things that the father and the son does that the, the holy spirit doesn't well then it doesn't seem like they actually share in their same the the unity um again this is just the the argument that was being put forth and i said well you know, um, obviously people have responded to that in various ways. And in fact, the irony is that the, the argument that it is somehow sidelined or diminished the Holy Spirit in the Western church is precisely the reason that they put the filioque into the first place, uh, was to emphasize the, the, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But, but again, I'm, I was relatively out of my depth, and, I've, and I was interested in talking about this to you all uh, sort of offline. And then Matt, in characteristic form had um in great uh sort of reaction and energy about it so 
I don't know, Matt. Let's play devil's advocate here because I'm I'm not convinced that it's a or at least I'm I'm on the fence more now than I ever was before. I'm not saying I'll make a liturgical change, but I'm I'm more sympathetic to some of the argumentation than I was in the past. Well, as as confessional Anglicans who confess the three nine articles in full without crossing our fingers. Uh, we can never accept the d- dropping of the filial claim from the creed because we have it enshrined in Article Five of the Thirty Nine Articles. So, um, the fact that Anglicans have been have been frittering away this confession since 1976, I think, um, is is a shame for our not our denomination, but our I guess our family of churches. Um, so, uh, w- just to respond to the theological point you were you were making. Um, Aquinas. I was just, uh, I was just reflecting on it. I wasn't necessarily right. making. I'm not, I'm not debating. You know, <laughs> I'm just that, asking questions. But that's a point. That, that's right. I'm just saying. I mean, how long have you been? Uh, yeah, that's a point. That that's right. So uh, Aquinas, <laughs> thinking about you know divine simplicity, the, uh, the essential oneness of 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 Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in in essence, in in ontology was wrestling with how how then do you distinguish between the persons right so if, if right. with that because you don't want to say that any one of the persons has something inherent that, that that doesn't belong to all three because they're that would that would do away with divine simplicity that would do it do it with the trinity in itself as as a as, as a, a oneness a one god so aquinas says the only way you can really distinguish the persons is by origin not by any kind of quality that adheres to either one of them, and so uh, and and so now we gotta, I gotta maybe make a caveat here when we say when we're talking about origin and the Trinity, we're not talking about origin in time, right? That's right. Uh, because the, the the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. These are these are not beginnings in time. These are, these are uh, questions of ontological sourcing any uh, in an eternal sense. So um, the way Aquinas would say, you could, the only way you can really distinguish the persons is by origin. So the the son has been begotten of the father. The father is not begotten of the son. That's one thing we can say. Uh, the Holy Spirit, um, if if the Holy Spirit is only proceeding from the father, Aquinas would argue. I think he did argue. That there's no real discernible difference between the son and the, and the spirit. spirit, right? So you have, and so in order to distinguish the son and the, the son and the spirit, you have the, the spirit proceeding from the father and the son, and within that distinction, there there is more distinction to be made, um, and that is that uh, the spirit, I'm sorry, the, the son doesn't, the spirit does not proceed from the son in the same way. As, as from the father in the sense that the, the father is the ground of, of, of origin. And so maybe a phrase that I think that the Roman Catholics have kind of adopted in their, in their debates with, with Orthodox is that the, the spirit proceeds uh, from the father through the son. The son right. has, has, instead of saying, because they mean, they, they would argue, and I agree with them, that saying that the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father and the son means the same thing. But... Uh, the language of proceeding from the Father through the Son is more acceptable. They think it would might be more acceptable to the East than just saying that. Seemed to be that seemed to be one of the conclusions of the at least one of the commentators we were reading during that articles that that would capture the the non heretical viewpoint that proceeding from the Father and the Son actually keep, keeps you from having, um, while at the same time uh, communicating something clear that's in line with actually what the Orthodox are trying to argue by dropping the filioque. So it did seem there seemed some fruitful 
um, avenues there possibly. But I do think, you know, that the, because being begotten and proceeding are two different things. I mean, if you want to look at it that way. So you could say if the father was the font, then he's doing two separate things. Um, there's two different aspects to the same person, but through the son, the procession from the father comes as opposed to being begotten from the father. Because, you know, I think that the real challenge, at least the argument was, if you subsume the father and the son into, into this aspect of their characteristic, then you, at least the argument, I mean, both sides argue that if you're doing extreme heretical injustice to the Trinity and you're in your danger of, you know, rending time, space, continuum, the fabric of time and space. But I do think that for the sake of our current debates, that clarifying the distinctions, however we go about it, is important with respect to the, the individual um, identifying characteristics of the persons of the Trinity, because when it is when it is collapsed into itself, as we've seen, becomes a monad of some sort. Well, then you do have this unitary sort of this sort of um, well unitarianism essentially, but that has um, sort of disastrous consequences for the for all of the other distinctions that we see in in God's created world. Um, most notably, being the image of God who created a male and a female. You know, I mean, if God Himself in Himself has no discernible distinctions, although albeit still unified and simple in one. Um, well, then how can we expect there to be any reflection of his image on earth? And so you could then easily see how you could argue that, well, there really isn't, because just as those are temporal placeholder or, you know, sort of me metaphysical, um, functional placeholders without any actual distinction, well, then so is, um, so are men and women, you know, so are, so are whatever, you know, this side of, I, mean, I don't know, that's kind of the conceptual argumentation that begin to unravel, or at least in my mind, starts to unravel when you begin to to look at the ramifications of collapsing some of these these identities into each other, uh, which I think obviously we'd hope to be avoided. I mean, Jesus in John 15 and 16, we could ground our discussion in the scriptures as we always like to do, um, does specifically refer to the Holy Spirit as proceeding from the Father, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And then he refers to the Spirit taking what is his, taking what is Jesus's, and giving it to the disciples in John 16. So there's, I mean, we would all agree, perhaps without even needing to say it, that, that there's a clear distinction between the persons there. <laughs> He's referring to the Father and to the Son as things that are separate from himself, obviously all one in the Trinity. But then there's, so that seems like it would lead one to think, yeah, there's no seeming need for the filioque because Jesus is explicitly saying that the father is the source, the proceeding where the spirit proceeds from. But then he also breathes on the, to the disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So there's a sense in which it's at least through the son, if not from the son as well. I mean, we just got to be right. careful here, like using, so do you think John or the Holy Spirit who inspired John, when, when he used the term proceed, the Holy Spirit's, Jesus used the term, the Holy Spirit's proceeding from the Father, do you think he intended to convey what we're talking about? It's just the same or, word in or, English. Or than, or than just to say the Holy Spirit comes from the Father, yeah. which is, which is what we would say, uh, we would all say. Um, so I don't know the... That that's the first thing I say. The second thing is we should probably take note of the principle that uh, that 
we tend to use when thinking about the the inner life of the trinitarian of the trinity and that is that the economic trinity is is the best evidence we have for the that's right uh the imminent trinity the, the, so in other words the econ- by economic trinity i mean yeah. the way they relate to one another in in the pages of scripture as they're doing as they're as in, in the work of redemption that is it gives us that gives we we could we should assume some correspondence between that and their interrelations. So, in, if we take that, if we take that kind of evidence, then then well, you do have yes, the Holy Spirit coming uh, from the Father, but you also have Jesus sending the Holy Spirit, imparting the Holy Spirit, and you have the Spirit being spoken of as a Spirit of the Father. But you spirit also have the Spirit of Christ, being spoken yeah. of, of Christ, right? So you have you have all that language intermixed, and I think that I, I actually think the Orthodox lang- Orthodox argument does not do justice to the full weight of of evidence we have from the economic trinity how how they how they relate to one another because they can't they can't really account for that spirit of christ and and the being taken and what's being his being taken from him by the holy spirit and given to others so those are it's all kind of procession from the sun language that we might use and then there's a great image in in, in revelation 21 where the the stream of the, the the river of life right which jesus refers to as as an image for the holy spirit in in john chapter 7 but in revelation 21 also written by john you have this the river this image of the, of the river of life you have the trees on the other side of it flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, which is which is fascinating, fascinating imagery. Uh, of course, it is just imagery, so we can't draw, we can't be, um, we're not, don't take it literally necessarily. But but there you have the image of the Holy Spirit flowing from God and the Lamb, the Father and um, and and the Son. So I think if you, if you take all the biblical evidence, I think the I think the weight clearly rests with. Um, with the weight of the evidence, pretty rest with the Western position on this, and not the Eastern position on this. Um, I think the East has a point with regard to uh, the maybe the etiquette of whether we should have added the filioque in the first place. But I think we, I, I'm not sure we want to get into that yet. But um, that's an interesting question too: is why it was added, and that lead, that would lead us to questions about when creedal statements are insufficient to meet challenges posed by new heresies because so that's one reason why the affiliate was added is to uh, deal with the with the false teaching i think it's worth talking both about why it was added and about what each side sees at risk mm. with the other side's view yeah so okay the um the 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 Nicene Creed is was finalized in 381. Right? 325 is the first 323 325 is when it was the first Nicene meeting took place. They came out with the with the the kind of the kernel of what we now call the Nicene Creed. But the the bit about the Holy Spirit was didn't have much about it. Just we believe the Holy Spirit uh, proceeds from the Father. Um, and then in the uh, the finalized version, some 60, 70 years later. Six years later, you had uh, you had what we have now, except instead of except it didn't include the filioque clause. So the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. So to say, and that was the agreed upon language, and that was the symbol of orthodoxy uh, going forward. But uh, there were Arians still around. Arians are people who don't believe the Son is is fully divine, or if they do believe he's they, they believe he has an origin in time and not, not in time, co-eternal with the Father. Yeah, not co-eternal with the Father. There was a time when he was not. It's the Arian motto. And in Spain, the Visigoths had uh, hold, held a whole bunch of territory 
and they were in, in conflict with the Catholics. When I'm using Catholic here, I don't mean like Roman Catholic, I mean just the church. Um, and uh, there's a, 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 in a council of Toledo, I think it was, they, the, they added when the Visigoths were deciding to become Catholic themselves. And so the Filioque was added to the creed as a means of saying, of, 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 of having parity between the father and the son. So you were, you were saying to the Arians, no, the son is fully God. See, the Holy Spirit is proceeding from the father and the son. The son shares all mm-hmm. of the attributes as, as a father. And, and when that, and as time went on, that was, that was in the West, how it was, why it was added and, and why it was continued to be necessary. And, and a lot of the Western fathers use that language from uh, Hilary Poitier and um, uh, Augustine and Ambrose, all the, they use, they use the language of the, of the spirit proceeding from the father, either through the son or just from the father and the son. And it just becomes part of the way the West talks about, uh, talks about the Trinity. Uh, East gets a load of it and they're, they are upset. Not, not. They weren't at first upset. They get. They, they grew more and more upset as time went on um, about this, and so there was an increasing conflict leading up to the Great Schism, like JD mentioned earlier. Uh, but then, in the there were several councils in the 1300s, 1400s, where the East and West tried to get back together on the question. And in fact, I think it was the Council of Florence where the East and West decided to go ahead and use that language of proceeds from the Father through the Son they could both kind of agree on that but then that blew apart because the eastern church was came under the sway of of the turks of the uh, muslims who did not want to have the eastern church have any kind of unity with the western church for fear the western church would send armies to liberate the eastern church so anyway it's all mixed up with politics it's interesting well, fascinating sure. uh fascinating history but but the reason you know you come so you come to the reformation um, Did you write this paper for Christian Research Institute? Is this where you get this? No, from? no, no. I just, I just, I'm totally fascinated by the whole thing. So, yeah, ladies, well, and, ge- ladies and gentlemen, Matt Kennedy with no notes, top of his head. <laughs> so the, uh, the when the Reformation comes along, the, the reformers is just there's not there's not really a debate in the Reformation because the Reformation um, discussion was between Western Christians, and so all the Western Christians really kind of received the Western Western tradition, and so that's why it just got put into our articles without much debate or argument. It was just it received the received wisdom of, of the Church Fathers all the way back, as far as our Reformers remembered. So, I mean, it's, you know, you know that was interesting, because, you know, that's kind of what happens, is, you know, there's a, a challenge to Church doctrine, and that's usually when when confessions are, are, are put together or, or, or we, we add more to our standards. So uh, 20 years ago, if you had a basic church, this is what we believe page, you may not have seen anything about we believe in the doctrine of marriage uh, or some articulation of what marriage is. But now in an Orthodox church, you more than likely are going to see something like that in the we believe page because because heresy, when it re- raises its head, causes the church have to have to articulate it so the reason that's important is because the east is going to say well you're you know you're adding you invented um, this yeah you invented this and the west is saying no we didn't invent it we're just we're, we're actually we always thought this was the case we're just articulating it in face uh, in the face of heresy yeah it's like the idea of the invention of penal substitution by anselm in 1000 uh, when, when really he just needed to come against people who were questioning it as the, what the church had always believed. It was just written down then. Exactly. Exactly. So this is where, this is where I get, I get a little heated 
This is too, <laughs> I mean, so, and I'll tell you what because I think I, I really I do I, I do not like the, the 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 I don't think it's wise to to discard parts of our heritage um, for ecumenical unity when those parts are important. Right. Uh, so we're frittering away the filioque so that we can have we can have a relationship with the orthodox is not something i think we should do uh the the and the reason we're doing it, it's interesting and the roman roman catholics have kind of shied away from this but the but the reason we were doing it at least in 1976 and i think so on is, is not because the anglicans disbelieved it at least many of them anyway it was because we just think it was badly done. You know, it was it was impolite to add it to the to the creed. So we're going to undo that impoliteness, but we're still going to believe in the filioque. But we're going to have a semantic agreement with the East, so we can have unity with them. I don't think we should be having any unity with the East. I mean, we should the things we should be talking about the East are not the filioque. We should be telling them about. Uh, you know, Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, justification. Yeah, you guys need to have yeah. the gospel first, and then we can talk about the <laughs> That's the tagline right there. <laughs> okay, so you're going to bracket this out, Nick, I'm about to expose, I don't know if my ignorance or just my confusion um, about this. I mean, my, my work on Trinitarian theology um, really was structured around 20th century Lutheran um dialogues, which, you know, history is probably going to prove to be mostly heretical, um, you know, <laughs> and so, um, but one of the arguments was that with the kenosis, Jesus, you know, self-emptying, you know, though he had the, the likeness of God, he, he you know, devote, divested himself of it and took on likeness of human flesh, so that the Holy Spirit um, predates, obviously, the incarnate Son being part of the eternal trinity, um, and so as the communicative bond of of um, self-sacrificial um, divine love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you know, the, so that which when Jesus was was a fully human person without being God, he was nevertheless still comforted and um, ministered to and led often, as we hear throughout the Gospels, by the Spirit himself, um, as would someone without sin be able to have direct communication with God through the Spirit, just as we are now given at Pentecost, a um, the same communicative ability by the spirit, not by um, direct access, or not by um, you, you know the, the spirit is the one who intercedes for us. The spirit is the one who who is the is the the conduit, for lack of a better word, for the believer by faith through Christ to the Father. And so it seems to me, I, this is why I didn't really understand. I didn't fully appreciate the debate. I don't think because it seemed in my mind, for better or worse, rather clear that just as the Spirit led Jesus as the human, um, you know, although divine, I mean, that's a great mystery too, um, during his time on earth, so then when sending from him to the world by the Spirit through faith, we would then have a similar, albeit through a, through a lens darkly, relationship to God the Father through the Spirit on account of the Son, um, access to the Father. And so, when I was hearing the filioque debates, I said, well, you know, if as long as you mean that it's um, that, that the spirit is co-equal, like you said, um, with the father and the son, well, then that's great. Um, then, then I think and the son makes a lot of sense. But when I was when you start hearing the arguments, um, you know, the actual sort of technical Trinitarian arguments about various uh, hypostases and and attributes and things. Well, then it does seem not that it. Not that I think it's heretical to say in the sun, but it does seem to be unnecessary 
when, if you even look at the language of the creed, it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, period. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. So all of the all of the aspects of his divinity and his equality are said that with the Father and the Son, he's worshiped and glorified without having to put this, this, this dual procession um, because f- from what, what proceeds from the Holy Spirit, you know, um, except, uh, well, we wouldn't argue, ever argue that the Son would, could, could theoretically proceed from the Holy Spirit or that, the, or that the Father could be begotten by the Son. And so if the individual attributes of the three people of the Trinity was that the Father begets and proceeds um, and, and Jesus is begotten and through which the Holy Spirit is given, you know, that seems to, to at least theoretically, um, keep the, the distinctions and the unity together. But, but, but again, all of that being said is that I thought, I think that the whole question, you know, when it looks at what the, the Bible is talking about, it's clearly Jesus is, is led by the Spirit. He talks about the proceeding from the Father. He sends the Spirit. And it seems like, you know, that, that, that compromise position, which really isn't um, much of a compromise, seems to be rather clarifying. It's, it proceeds from the Father through the Son. Um, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. Like, I, I, would, I wish that that had, at least at the moment, when I think about changing liturgy, which I'm not going to do um, anytime soon, I don't think, but, but that would be a, a compromise that I think would be much more tenable, or at least it, it, it would seem to answer some of the, the actual theological questions without capitulating to just sort of an ecumenical veneer that obviously, as you just point out, Matt, has a lot more problems with it than just whether or not we can say the same creed. Because um, we could all just decide to say the Apostles' Creed. I mean, or, you know, we could just be, I mean, you know, there's ways to get around having to say filioque. And somehow for centuries, we've been able to, we've been able to say the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer while the Church of England yeah, hasn't. Right. And we're still, <laughs> right. able, we're still able to, no one's gone to the guillotine yet. So, Matt, does that make any sense? I mean, can someone reflect on what I just said? I mean, am I making my heretic or is that just, okay. Yeah. I want to ask Matt Looks like a heretic, walks like a heretic, talks like a heretic. <laughs> a heretic. Actually, and actually, a Church of England bishop. <laughs> so, Matt, are you saying that it's just not at all worth changing a creed we've been saying one way for 1,600 years for some sort of ecumenical apology? Or are you saying, in addition, that something substantive will be lost if we were to change it? Both, yeah, I'm saying both because because I, I think the biblical uh, evidence is pretty clear. Again, the weight the weight of that falls on on the or, on the Western Orthodox side, not the Eastern Orthodox side, uh, because because the and not just New Testament evidence. I mean, you have look at say the the vision and that Ezekiel has of, of the Valley of Dry Bones. You know, God speaks to him. The way to say prophesy to the breath, right? <clears throat> uh, speak, use uh, speak, and then. The, the spirit will fill, will, will blow, and these dry bones will live, right? The, the idea there is you have a, a, a the father, I mean, if you, if you want to take God, word, and spirit, you have the same kind of pattern you see in the New Testament, where uh, where word, where the word is the one through whom the spirit comes. Um, you see the same kind of thing in creation, right? God speaks, things are coming to pass, and then the, uh, then you have like with the creation of man, the spirit coming in as well, or be, the breath being given to him, the breath of life. So I, I, I think that I think that there's a, there's a pattern biblically that if we're going to use that principle, that what we see in in the econ- economic trinity, we see we 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 should 
sees corresponding to the imminent Trinity, then then I think we have to say that Ooh. that that creedal edition is is worthwhile, and we shouldn't drop it. Um, because well, but conversely, why why couldn't then then why couldn't the Son have been begotten by the Father and the Spirit? I mean, with the Spirit, with the Spirit and the Father, the Son was. I mean, in in conjunction. I mean, in the, if you keep the unity. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm not. Where, where would you that, see that? Like, where would you see that? Where would you see that language? Well, you would only see it in the fact that the eternal Godhead was was active. You know, um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were not. They were not divided in the sending of this in the begetting of the Son. So do, unless do think... there was a distinction, I'm not arguing this. I'm just saying, like this is right, this right. is where the because because the argument against dual procession is that there was something that is unique to the Father and the Son that the Spirit doesn't share, and so if begotten, the ability to beget something is unique to the Father, but not to the Son and not to the Spirit, then the procession seems to be something that could be the the proceeding from, albeit through Jesus. Um, seems to be something that could easily also be unique to God the Father. And the argument then contrary to that would be if you made one of these activities that two of the three could have, well, then you have done you have done violence to um, the simplicity and the unity because differentiation is not a problem. But when you when you out counterbalance it or, or put it off kilter, I'm just I'm just giving you the at least as far as I can understand part of the mm -hmm. argument that was being made. And I think, again, I think that's where, practically speaking, we're not arguing that. Um, but but when you get into the technical, theological, um, you know, sort of jargon concerning um, union and hypostasis and, and uh, attributes and all of these various things, you can see how the argument could be made, at least. But then you could also just flatly reject it and say, well, that's not what we mean, <laughs> you know, which is sort of in the case. Seems well, like you a, sound like you have three gods. Like, a family you know, with a family with triplets. They all need to have the exact same shirt, and they need <laughs> well, to go I on the exact same field trips. It is a little I, bit like the conversation about the subordination debate within the Trinity, which we don't have to talk about now. But you know, there is there is a reality to the fact that we would never conceive of the Son um, sending the Father, for instance, or the Spirit begetting the Father, or you know that the 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 relations, the economic relations, as you pointed out, um, Matt, are what we know. And so the imminent um, are, are things that we speculate to a certain degree. And we get some insight into that. When Jesus says, you know, give me back the glory that I've shared with you before the all eternity. You know, we see that there is this, this, this relationship that existed well beyond outside time and space. That, but that's not nearly as clear as what actually happened, which is that um, the spirit is, exists, you know, hovers over the face of the deep from the very beginning. You know, it's almost the first, you know, the, then the beginning God created I mean, the means by which he, he touched the world was through the spirit um, until the son incarnate came. And so, you know, that's just, it, it's, I mean, it's really quite fascinating. Um, through the word, but yeah. Right. I mean, he, but, he spoke the world into existence. He was hovering over the waters, but the world was, was created yeah. by the speaking of the word of God. Yeah. But right. that leads to believe like, but what, what is the active power of the word of God? Uh, other than the, well, I don't know. I mean, is it? Well, the word I of mean, God is active because the spirit is, comes with it. That's right. right. So that's he's right. proceeding that's from a... the sun. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm not, I'm, I told you I didn't really want to talk about this. I mean, this was, I told you. I mean, it's okay. I having a they, conversation. It's fine. I'm not, I'm, it. I'm not, well, <laughs> I was just interested that, you know, so, so next week, what... JD will have a big giant hat and a big long beard. 
That's right. That's right. And I, um, I'll, yeah, that's right. And I was drinking my communion bread or whatever it is with the, um, but well, no, I think, I mean, I was just surprised that in, you know, it just, I don't know. I haven't been paying attention to this. You can only, you can only pay attention to so many fronts, um, uh, you know, and so this is just was a new, a new level of the uh, intrigue for me. And I was interested, as I said in the beginning to see that it's, in, in the College of Bishops statement, there seemed to be a um, at least a leaning towards an outright rejection of at least Article 5, as you pointed out, Matt, which, you know, is another layer of um, tension within um, our church that, that, you know, seems to be, if not unnecessary, certainly unresolved to the point where I'm surprised now as I dig into this, how many people that I at least am in contact with, not necessarily in our diocese, but in various channels, active clergy clergymen are um have taken out the filioque you know and and they're and they're they're allowed to do it and it's obviously in our prayer book um something that you can consider and i just i just thought for me i was like oh well here's another here's another interesting um unresolved tension that i um that i was unaware was so so fraught um i thought it was just kind of like well if you really want to minister in the um out in um you know uh, Bucharest or something. If you want to go out to uh, Romania and have a have, do a retreat, then you were given the freedom to drop the filioque if someone asked you to speak at an Orthodox monastery. And then all of a sudden, it's like, no, it's actually much more than that. And it's just on me, I guess, that I didn't appreciate the depth of the of the um, the, the continued debate. Um, and I guess that's also because I, like you, am very suspicious of anyone that. Um, wants to tamper with some of these um, hard fought and and laid down formularies that we so lovingly lovingly protect us in, in so many ways. I mean, okay, so go back to this a little bit earlier in the conversation. I, I I do think Aquinas has the the right the right take on this that 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 just the spirit proceeding from the father is not enough of differentiation from uh, the son being begotten of the father. You, you have to have a third, a, a, a third type of, of differentiation of, of origin. And so I think the father, the, the spirit different, the spirit proceeding from the father and the son provides that in a way that doesn't tend to meld together uh, son and spirit. So uh, anyway, but then uh, secondly, you know, the, the, there's some, I think some real consequences to, to dropping the filioque theologically in the way that we present and understand the work of the Trinity in, in redemption, for example, you know, if you, um, I think if you, I think the Trinity perceived in the Eastern way does, I think, lend a little more credence to those who might want to see the operation of the spirit apart from the word, you know, you have that in charismatic circles sometimes, you know, this, we're, we're people of the spirit. We don't yes. be, can be, be focused on the dead letter of the law. We are, we are what we are spirit people, um, making sure we keep yes. the, keep the, the procession of the spirit from the father and the son tends to work against that. And, and the way that we proclaim the gospel as, uh, as the spirit never operates apart from the word and, ah. Uh, there's there's always there's always a unit union there you can't have the spirit uh bringing about you know a, a salvation of someone without having also brought that person to the sun so i think i think there's some there's kind of a, a practical ways that that this theology does play itself out in our preaching and teaching which is we just think about um how the spirit operates i think that definitely is practically um you know whether whether again to the to the sake of argumentation for the, our, our brothers 
um, who have dropped the filioque. Whether it necessarily leads to that is not the case, but we can see that, that it certainly doesn't uh, protect against, which is the great irony because the ar the argument is they're trying to protect against by having the filioque. They're saying that they were devaluing the person and uniqueness and, and grandeur of the Holy Spirit as a as the third person of the Trinity. I mean, it was the title of the title of Article Five in Oliver O'Donovan's commentary on the Third and Articles, the Forgotten or the or the Afterthought or something like this. I forget. I can even look it up. But it's but you know basically it was like well we had to throw in the Holy Spirit and. And I don't think that's a fair treatment. Um, but I, again, if you're from whatever perspective you're looking at, it's going to color your your determination. But but I do think that when the when the the over I want to say overemphasis, but but to your point, Matt, when it's when it's decoupled at all from the work of the sun, at least at least if you're given that freedom, we're going to take it because if we can get around the cross, if we can get outside of his um, death for sinners, if we can get outside of the historical scandal of his particularity and all the various things that the, the, the sun represents, um, well, then we are allowed, you know, our sinful flights of fancy into all sorts of speculation. And we see that over centuries of what's actually happened. Not, not altogether, but but um, certainly the, the propensity is, is latent in all of our hearts. And I think that's where however conceived, whether it's the filioque or not, that when we um, divide the, the, the identity of the Trinity into um, entirely separate beings, you know, God, even saying God, Son, and Spirit is not, is, does not do justice to what we're actually saying. We're saying God the Father, Father of the Son, the Son who lived and died for you, and then by his, whose Spirit and whose Spirit alone, not in general, but specifically of the Son through the Father, I mean, through the Son of the Father, and together is the one that's going to save you. And like, that is something that we see that evangelistic impulse and that sort of um, that um, that clarity has been lost, I think, in some of the preaching and teaching of the Orthodox church, uh, you know, and you could lay it at the feet of the, of the lack of the filioque. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that's, it's part of a whole, but you could also on the flip side say, you know, in the West where we have, um, have the filioque it has not protected us from this um you know from our share of theological trinitarian well, yeah and you, also. Can, you can make so, that move but, even if you had the filioque yeah. i mean I, like thomas merton who please don't read thomas merton if you're reading thomas merton but <laughs> but, the, but the kind of the, the kind of mysticism that he that he and others like him you know kind of push which is which is once you get beyond the different differentiations between islam and christianity and buddhism you find yourself in the one spirit that unites us all and there's this kind of uh what that tends to do is you know of course de-emphasize christ as uh, as, sure. as the as the one through whom we're saved so uh so it can happen in the west i'm just saying i i'm just saying a, tr a proper trinitarian viewpoint does help combat that in a way that you might Amen. be able to combat that please yeah. Well, I think I think that you know, for, for having wrestled with this now for I don't know a week. <laughs> I mean, in this in this capacity, <laughs> I'm I'm intrigued by it, and so I um, but I having heard some very um, impassioned arguments for and against it in in class and read it, reading some things, I I'm grateful at the very least to to be able to say, and I know this is not no surprise to our our listener. That um, whether one still can be an, an orthodox evangelical crucicentric, um, you know, evangelistic preacher, or whether they keep the filioque or not. I mean, I think that's that. Um, you know, I don't think we should disparage uh, the disagree those who disagree with us. That being said, I I think my final analysis is that at the at the moment, you know, I think for all the reasons we mentioned, um, historically, 
theologically, uh, practically, just with respect to the liturgy we've been handed down, and then not the least of which they're in articles themselves, it does seem, well, it does, it's, I'm, I seem less likely to be making a change anytime soon than, than, than not. Um, but it's, it's fascinating going forward in the ACNA that this, I, I was surprised again at the level of like interest and, and, you know, there's like the, it was like people snapped up as a super early morning class. And um, <laughs> I was, I was, half, everyone was half asleep until we got to this point. And I was like, Oh, well, we've hit, hit a, hit a live topic here. So I don't know. I'd be interested to see how this plays out in ACNA going forward. And this is my last story because I know we're running out of time, but I, I first wrote about this publicly back in 2011. Um, I got, cause I was, I was writing articles for Stan firm. Then, I was going through the art, the third down articles. So I came to article five and I innocently wrote uh, how wonderful that article was and how wonderful it was. We had the Kamioke and, and I got a, uh, I got a phone call in a long letter from Bishop Ray Sutton of the, of the REC and the REC is a great, let's take a moment and say, <laughs> yeah, wait, let's how have wonderful a <laughs> the REC is. I love the REC and everyone. Okay. So and much there's love. absolutely no so problem love. with the REC at all. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful organization. They're founding jurisdiction. Um, and yeah, exactly. Um, and I love Bishop Sutton. He's a great guy, but he, but he, boy, he take me to task. And I realized, man, I, I have not done my homework on, on this. Well, he, I feel like I'm was, about 10 years behind yeah. you there, Matt, because I was, <laughs> I was like, what, well, who could probably care about this? Uh, I hope Bishop, Bishop Sutton, um, if you'd like to call me, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> like to set me straight, that's fine. I have been edified by oh, much he's, of his he's, he's, he's on your side on this. He, he does not agree. Don't with, say uh, my side. I, I, re- yeah. I resent that. I reject that. It's not true. I, I, although having much of what I've read of Bishop Sutton, I, 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 I that his much of what he writes, I instinctively defer to. That he's a real gift to our to our church. I can say with his various. His, I was just reading his book about this. Who owns the family? You know, like mm-hmm. the church or the state? You know, it's like how prescient is that? You know, I mean, in terms of what we're dealing with now with the openly questioning whether or not um the school should be able to suppress you know ideas from your your children you know i mean stuff like this anyway sorry i'm just i was um well so you i uh, did he, he didn't set you straight did y'all decide for like pistols at dawn or something is that how no that no happened? i mean hey, well, he didn't set me i mean i didn't agree with him but i didn't know why i didn't agree with him so, so, so I, didn't, know. I didn't write it back i didn't he wrote he wrote, he wrote, he wrote, a, he wrote a, an article in stand firm and i didn't write back because he's a bishop and what am i going to say yeah so, so. <laughs> Well, thanks, as always, for listening to Stand Firm this week. Uh, Before we get to our usual sign-off, we want to put in a special plug for next week's episode. We'll be welcoming Dr. Lee Cadis onto the show. He's the director of the Church Society in England and a wise commenter on all things Anglican. He'll be talking about the recent report of the House of Bishops and more, so be sure to tune in next week. In the meantime, if you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord Willing. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 